Welcome to Almost Awakened. I'm your host, Bill Real. We explore human development here, spirituality, psychedelics, sexuality, and more. Our aim? Equipping you with tools for a fulfilling post-religious life. This is Almost Awakened. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. This is going to be an exciting conversation. I've got my good friend Ammon with us today. Uh, Ammon, how are you doing? Doing great. Glad to be here. Excellent. So uh, let's start off. We've got uh, the questions. Again, the way this has been working for the audience, if you haven't heard me explain this, we've come up with about, I don't know, 80 to 100 really deep questions that would allow uh, an individual who's uh, had really deep life experiences and has a, a voice of wisdom and to be able to look at these questions, pick out some. And I, I had each participant pick out 10 questions. And uh, in the three that I've done before, they turned out uh, really fantastic. I am super excited about this conversation because I know you well enough that we tend to always find ourselves, uh, I think, in great conversations. And uh, so I'm excited for this. But folks, what happens is each participant gets to pick out the 10 questions that are meaningful to them. And then we facilitate here a conversation that is meant to help the person deconstructing, the person who is trying to figure out post-religion, how to create a vibrant, healthy life of well-being for them and for uh, happiness and well-being for the folks that those people are in relationship with. And uh, I thought this would be a a fun chance for you and I to sit down and sort of recreate conversations that we've had in the past, but Ammon, uh, give us sort of a brief bio about yourself before we dive into uh, some of these ideas. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in a military family that, so I moved around quite a bit. So that kind of changed my life experience growing up. I was, you know, born into a, a very religious Mormon family. So that was a big part of my life. And, you know, I did all of the typical Mormon things. Um, being in the military, I do feel like kind of changed a lot of the typical, I guess, experiences that I, that at least the people that I've talked to and shared my experiences with. So that kind of changed my life a little bit. Um, then was married super young. Uh, another thing that kind of changed a little bit of our experience, and this is part of some of the questions I brought up today, is that uh, one of our kids is adopted. So he's um, we went through that process, and that has. I mean, changed a lot of my perspectives on a lot of things. One of those reasons being that he is not white. So um, understanding and having my eyes open to how people from different races, you know, have to navigate the world and things like that. Having a kid do that. Anyway, let's um, talk about that just for a moment. Before you finish up, I do want you to be able to say more things, but let's stop there for a moment. No, that's it. As a Caucasian person married to a Caucasian person who had Caucasian children, there is a, the nature of privilege and patriarchy and all the things that play into the way our society is established. And for the most part, in some ways, uh, any of these European countries, the way they're set up, um, what are some of the things that you have to think about when, what are some of the things that come across your your view and you have to wrestle with in your mind or be aware of in your head when it's not an all white family. Yeah. So, so one of the very first things that I think kind of took me off guard, both, you know, 
we we had to do classes as we were preparing to adopt and they go through all these you know background checks and so on and so forth but one of the one one of the things we went through is there was a panel of 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 moms that had that had adopted children that were not white into white families and the whole point of the panel was to describe some of the challenges and difficulties of what it is to have a, a child that is that is not white in a world that you are used to being white so some of the things they brought up right off the bat was like as your teen as your kids grow um you you have to worry about your kids if they get pulled over by police officers you know not just like oh man your, your kid's gonna get a ticket but the the repercussions and the racism that that is just there with getting pulled over from an online kid, uh, sending your kid to a, if he's walking home from school or she or she's walking home from school one day and walks into a gas station, walking into that gas station with a backpack versus a white kid, there's a very different experience. And and mm. so those, I think really right off the bat threw me off and didn't, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, I've got, I've got some stories that are connected to, you know, some of these questions that have, have definitely changed my perspective um, and I don't know how much you want to get into that right now, but those are some of the early things that definitely stood out that were different yeah. that I didn't, hadn't thought much about. Yeah. Having, being a white European heterosexual cisgender male gives, gives me a very, uh, limited perspective and tons of blind spots that, uh, as we'll get into this conversation, those things, uh, show up only when you're forced to see another human being's experience and bringing uh, a child who's not white into your home as a parent who wants to care and provide and make sure that child has safety and security. You, for the first time in your life, you see things that you had never seen before. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and it's, it's not like I, I grew up in like a, a, a small white community. Um, you know, the military is a, pretty diverse place uh, most most of my friends um ranged in all different races and so I, I had experience with a lot of different races most of the girls i dated in high school were not white i mean I, I so it's not like i was never around this stuff but it's a different experience when you are sharing life with one of those people and not only are we sharing life but that's one it's it's a one of our kids you know and um I don't, I'm going to jump into one of the stories just, just because this is one of the biggest shocks. We had just recently moved to Texas and I have two kids that are about a year apart. So they're one year in grade apart is all. <clears throat> one of them is biological and white. The other is, is, you know, like I said, is not, he's, he's um, Hispanic. And we just moved to the school and they were in third and fourth grade. And the difference in how we were receiving communication between the teachers from the one kid to the other was was dramatically different and I, I i guess the the easiest maybe the easiest way to describe this is the with our white son he was he was the teachers were they were much more careful and soft in how they approached and brought up information but with our other son i feel like they were short um the, the emails were very abrupt not very not not necessarily mean um but they weren't they weren't just they they were a lot they were just a lot less nice. I don't know how else to describe that. I wish I had something to show you. There um, is a way people, in the human language that we, we give extra words to fluff things up so that they are softer or yeah. taken with more, uh, like a welcome, more welcomeness. Right. And, and yes. it sounds like they were just more abrupt, more direct and yes. not, not as many pleasantries. 
not as many pleasantries, right? Not, not as many pleasantries. And, and again, it, it's, it's, I couldn't grab one of those emails and, 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 and show you that they were being harsh or mean. That wasn't what it was, but they were definitely not being, they were not presenting in a way that was like, hey, we're really glad to have your kid here. It was more like, hey, your kid's in our class. This is what we expect of him versus the other one would have been something like, hey, we're really happy to have him here. It's been a pleasure and the experience. And, you know, the, it, it, it just it just had a different feel and tone to it. And the ultimate, I think, thing that really came to a head, which shifted my perspective so much was when we went in for the per first parent-teacher conference night and they had no idea who we were. We had just received emails. When we walked in that classroom of my Hispanic son's, teacher to watch that person's face and shift was an interesting experience because they were where they were taken back immediately right because that is different you're not expecting white two white parents to walk in um but but then also i think that they it was almost like a non-verbal of oh man this is not i have not been presenting the way you expect to be presented to and you have not received information the way you're used to receiving information and then it changed and then it totally changed. Um, all of those, the communication shifted from what I had talked about to being more like we were getting from the other teacher and, and, and our white son. And so that was, it, it's it's one of these things in life that I, I don't want this to be true, right? Like it's, I've had lots of conversations with people about this and they, and they're, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to really express what something is like when you experience something like this, because I don't, who, who wants that to be the case, right? And I don't think these teachers were racist per se, where right? they were terrible, bad. They didn't just, it's just, we have this things that are built into our society and norms that are just happening. It's almost unconscious, and, isn't it? It's just almost I, absolutely. subconscious I so. or unconscious. I, yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's not like, again, they weren't treating him bad or worse than other students per se, but, but there is this difference in how they are being treated at school and, and i've seen it it's not the first time right that's that was just a really big stand-up one because we had just mm -hmm. moved to a new school there was no background there was no information that they knew nothing about us and so to see that and have that comparison direct side by side and then watch it change i think was really telling and unfortunate and um just made me realize that we we just have to i don't know accept and that that's a reality and, and yeah. we need to do better. We need to do better. I, I've got a, I've got a brother. One, I've got one sibling, one brother. We're four years apart. He's younger and he's intelligent. He works in the corporate world. He is the vice president of a company. He interacts with lots of people, is responsible to act in a way that represents his company in a healthy way. Um, and yet, you know, he doesn't really believe in systemic racism. He, he, uh, really has a hard time thinking that that a group of people just naturally don't achieve the same uh, say standard of things that another group of people achieve and for me it's really simple i mean if we go back to the you know 1800 it's not that long ago that slavery was a thing and it ends and um even when people of color are free they're segregation and they they can't go to the right uh, they can't go to the same restaurants. They can't drink from the water fountains. They can't ride in the front of the bus. They live in the poorer neighborhoods. They have the poorer hospitals. And it, it just it, it just occurs to me, it's a really natural question to go, how many hundreds of years does it take to completely resolve that? And it sure as hell isn't 200 years. Uh, it's no, certainly it's more than that. And and so this idea that you know we see, and we even saw it in the beginning of this country when 
folks that were even like Irish were treated as if they were a different color. There is this thing we do as human beings that we other people, there's us's and there's them's yeah. and, and create tribes. And um, when you have a society that has been primarily one color, and then you start to integrate other colors as minorities, it, it I can only imagine, especially when you add in slavery and, and segregation, that it literally takes a long, long time for us humans to start treating each other as equals. Yeah, no, I mean, clearly it does, right? And it's an unfortunate thing. I I think that we isolate ourselves in groups more than we want to acknowledge and realize mm-hmm. we do. And I think that's yeah. half the problem. When, we, when we're isolated and we don't, we're not experiencing life with other groups and different perspectives and different races, um, even though, you know, maybe we're open to it, Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're just, we're just not there. We're just not doing it, you know? And so it, it really, I think that is going to be the only way we can really do it, you know, spend more time in different places, but how do we break into those places and how does that happen? I, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't, but I think that's the only way we're going to get there. Like you can't read a book about racism and figure it out. Like you can't understand a person's experience without, I don't think you can do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that helps. It's just not mm-hmm. going to hurt you, but without actually, you know, really getting a firsthand approach and experience of, or, or at least seeing firsthand what they're experiencing, what other people are experiencing. I don't, I don't think there's any way that we're going to get past this, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, you, you say you can't really get away from it. Um, our group of friends, we have a monthly event called the outer darkness drinking club and our friends, we all get together uh, at a, a bar here in Southern Utah. And uh, for two, three hours, we hang out and catch up with each other. Beautiful moment. And I don't think anyone, I think everyone in that group, all 25 people who come at different moments to that group, I don't sense any of them are racist. I don't sense that any of them uh, are homophobic. I don't, I, I get the feeling these are individuals who realize that systems handed them bullshit they deconstructed the bullshit and they really just want to let people be themselves and, uh, and do so in a, in a healthy, vibrant way. Yet, what is our group? It's a bunch of white, bunch of white people, cisgender, <laughs> generally, uh, yeah. heterosexual, generally, uh, m- male and females who um, don't, that group doesn't have that wide of a diversity. Once in a while, someone will show up who is, outside of that little box. Uh, but for yeah. the most part, that's who we are. And so you, you make a good point, which is it's really difficult, even if you want to be healthy about these things, to find yourself in spaces where you learn perspectives of people who are very different than you. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it is a hard process. I mean, and I, and I like I, you know, you talk to a lot of people like, well, I, I, I want to, I want to have more friends that are different races or different, you know, sexual orientations or whatever, but also it's also not their responsibility to be your friend just to teach you what it's like to live in their shoes, you know? Right. So I, I, I don't know where this, how it becomes, you know, meshes together and makes the change. I, I don't know that process, but we're not there. <laughs> That's no. what I do know. Something has to change. Let's uh, let's jump. I'm sure we'll revisit this here along the way, but yeah. um, let's talk about one of the other ones here. So at the top of your list is this idea of navigating the complexities of human sexuality. And 
Um, one, what turns us on is different from human to human. What our degree of touch we want, the degree of passion, extrovert versus introvert. Um, th there is so many things about our sexuality that is going to be, has, has the propensity to be very different than the person next to us. And yet here we are in this world and we, we partner up with somebody. Um, there are the expressions of folks who are uh, gay or lesbian, bisexual, uh, transgender. Uh, There's so many ways in which a human being can show up in such a wide array of diversity, asexual, hypersexual. Maybe speak for a moment about what you see or perceive or how you navigate the complexities of human sexuality. Yeah. Uh, I, I read a book um, five or six years ago called Sexual Intelligence by a guy named Marty Klein, and he's a sexual therapist that the, the reason this book was so eye-opening for me is that the, the baseline of the book is he tells stories of clients that have come in. And a lot of time it's like a spouse or a partner of a client that comes in with concerns about some sort of, you know, sexual desire, some kink, some fetish, something that their partner has. And that partner is coming in with concern to be like, hey, you're a sexual therapist. You need to help my partner with um this specific thing like one example and i think we had meant we had talked about this but this there was a, a cop from new york very masculine in everything he did and presented as um and his wife had a concern because one of the things that he really loved was to wear women's underwear mm -hmm. and this was just kind of a, a thing that turned him on he really enjoyed it and so his wife sought this therapist out to say, Hey, listen, this is, this does not fit. You need to fix, what do we need to do to get him some counseling to fix what he's thinking and doing? And this therapist basically said, there's nothing wrong with any of this. Like sex, we need to stop asking, is sex normal? Is this normal? Is my thought about this normal? There is not normal, right? There's just, there just is like, we have thoughts, we have feelings, we have desires and we don't control those most of the time. I mean, I guess sometimes we, we, we try things that are new and different, but we have so many thoughts that are just, mm. they just are there. And, and so the whole book is just story after story trying to show us or show people that are reading it, that there is no, there is no such thing as normal. And we have to get, we have just have to get past that and start, stop judging and telling people that this is right. That's wrong. Um, so that was a really great, I feel like first, I say first because it was early on in my, you know, kind of transitioning and trying to figure out different perspectives on life is that I didn't need to be afraid because I think a lot of times a lot of these things carry fear. If we, if we mm. think a certain way or if we have a, a thought or a belief or a desire that maybe doesn't fit our quote unquote understanding of normal, then we get scared. Like we're, we're doing, we're, we're, we're in a, I don't know, a category that's not safe or not okay. But the truth is if, if we're not harming and we can do it in a consenting and safe way with the person that we want to do it with does it matter i don't think it matters you know safety and consent are the most important thing and outside of that it, as long as that's happening why do we have to be afraid yeah it, you hit on it first off when the wife says like we need to fix this it it conveys this idea that something's broken uh, the yeah. something is not the way it should be. And, and you put, you know, you put out there the idea that there's no such thing as normal. There isn't there, on the spectrum. You take any human behavior 
and it's on a spectrum. And uh, it's easy to go like, well, yeah, but I'm going to take that middle 35% and most human beings show up there. Hence, we're going to decide collectively that that's where you're supposed to be. And then you go like, well, then fine. Now we have to you know, castigate left-handed people because uh, yeah. they're not the majority. And the reality is that whether we're talking someone being right-handed versus left-handed, someone being asexual versus uh, median sexuality versus hypersexuality, there, there is no such thing as normal. And it really is this ethnocentric tribal mentality that decides what's good and what's bad. Um, and you put it, you know, you, you said it, it's, it's connected to fear. We have for hundreds of thousands of years based our society's behaviors, what's acceptable and what isn't on this idea of survival, which is linked directly to fear. And, and, I, and I think if we take a step back, I mean, what people are turned on by, their kinks, uh, what things uh, arouse them, what things, and it's not just your sexual turn-ons, it's your sexual attraction, whether you're, um, whether you're gay, whether you're transgender, what, these things are genetic. So there's not like, it's not like somebody's choosing. We had this old adage in our religion we came from where people chose these things and these things aren't a choice. These are, these are genetic or epigenetic factors involved, which says that there's something biological happening. And then when it comes to like turn-ons, often what we're learning is that something that happened to you in your childhood affects who you are as an adult, what turns you on. And so I, I remember a story about a man who was deeply turned on by high heels. And it was because there was something about his mother and something of neglect that happened and she always wore high heels and he just connected like some childhood trauma to now as an adulthood, it's sort of the opposite. It's something that turns him on. Um, we, we just have to start respecting, I think the wide array of human beings that are out there and give people, you know, being a human being is hard enough. Let's give people space as long as they're not hurting anybody to be the fullest expression of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 I, just, just to kind of add a little bit to that too. I, I also feel like it's really important to not, not have to necessarily have a reason for why. Like, I do think that you're you're 100 right. There, there is there is potentially tied to something that happened in their life, but also, I don't think that we necessarily have to have a reason for what we think or believe or desire. And and I think that we need to be okay with that too, because like killing ourselves over trying to understand why we might have a certain fetish or you know a, a certain kink or whatever, like. I don't think that that's necessarily the most productive way of trying mm. to understand it. Just, just embrace that we don't understand, right? It's it, the uncertainty of that is, I don't think we'll ever fully understand a lot of those things about ourselves. Yeah. We tend to, as humans, attribute sort of the bad to the things that make us uncomfortable or foreign novel. Um, And I'm struck by how much in this world, if we go into just U.S. history, and how much we decided was inferior without really understanding it. So, for instance, white settlers come into this country, and they determine that the way in which the Native Americans live is inferior. And they impose their religion and their culture on these people and their diseases, and, and to the point where it essentially commits sort of both explicit or intentional versus or subtle or implicit 
uh, genocide. And the inability of human beings to come into contact with other humans who are different than them and be accepting is a really tough task for a human being. It, it really doesn't come easy. It's sort of against our evolutionary nature. And, and yet, like you're saying, I mean, we're coming to a place in this world where we really just need to value. Like, and, and some people will argue that, that it's a slippery slope. If I, if I live with people being different in their sexuality, that eventually we're going to get to some place where we allow people to have sex with animals or sex with children. And, and that just doesn't make any sense to me. I know it doesn't make any sense to you, but no. this idea that these things are consent driven and children and animals don't give consent. That's not, that's not real. Um, I always joke yeah. around with people that the issue is not uh, having sex with a different species, by the way, because on Star Trek, they do it all the time. Captain Kirk is is a man whore who enjoys all of the proclivities <laughs> of traveling around the star system. So having sex interspecies, like we have no problem in our head going like, that's no problem. The issue yeah. is that when you're having sex with a species whose cognitive ability is unable, is not at the same level yours is, and they're unable to convey clearly consent. Um Societies that operate on consent are not going to have an issue navigating this issue. There, there isn't a slippery slope. But, but back to what you're saying, we just there's this idea of don't yuck somebody's yum. You should get to be the fullest expression of yourself, and sexuality is one of the biggest parts of who you are as a human being, uh, at least for most of us. Um, yeah. Primarily because we were having sex and reproducing long before we were human and sure as hell longer than before we had stories to talk about what we were doing. Sex really is a part of us. And just as people have different eye colors and skin colors, certainly and, and different thoughts about all kinds of things, certainly people's sexual nature is going to be just as diversified. Very much. Yeah. And I, and I think one thing that gets left out in this conversation a lot too, is this, idea of a lack of sexual desire you know so i mean there, there, there there's all ranges it's not just a mm -hmm. matter of like we also need to acknowledge and embrace that the fact that somebody doesn't you know they're ace and they don't have any desire to necessarily have sex or at least maybe not the equivalent desire that another person has that that's also that doesn't make them a problematic person that doesn't mm -hmm. make them less of a person that doesn't make them there, there is no there really is no right in any of this and um one, one of the things that I do love about what the internet has done for us is it's allowed people to connect and realize that they're not alone in some of these things that mm. they feel and think, you know, and I, I just, that makes me, I don't know, the, the internet has, it's brought so many good and bad things, but one of the most amazing things is I think um, making people not feel alone, you know, that they're, maybe they're not able to express their kink or whatever, but they find other people that have that and now they don't feel alone and embarrassed and they can talk about it. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, I think those are the steps that are going to help us get to a place where we finally are societally are going to be okay and accepting of difference, you know, that way. Yeah. Hope. We live. Yeah. We live in a world where if you were in your small hometown and you had a, a kink or a fetish that you wanted to explore, you were sort of limited if there wasn't somebody else in that town, like, what do you do? But in today's world, there's got to be a subreddit forum for that. There's got to be oh, a, yeah. a place to go every year to celebrate your differences with other people who have the same difference. Um, we yeah. do really do live in a world that you can sort of explore whatever makes you unique uh, as a human being. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Um, we talk sometimes about reality and, and what is real and what isn't. Um, recently in conversations, I've been exploring this idea of like time and space isn't fundamental to the universe and um, consciousness is, and, and that goes off into kind of quantum mechanics or kind of where that is being experienced. But I, I want to just ask you like, in terms of reality, we think we see the world unfolding in front of us the way it is. And each one of us humans thinks that we have the more accurate perception of reality. I think that's sort of how we come into the world thinking like, this is what it looks like. And if somebody says something different, well, they're the ones who are not thinking right. We've got it down. And I just want to ask you maybe when was a moment where you experienced a profound shift in your perception of reality and what did that do for you? Um, I, okay. So I, I listened to this. Um, I listened to a, I think it was a this American life podcast and this was long enough ago that I was in a place where I wasn't entirely sure what my stance on a person that was gay was and what that meant for mm. them in this world. And, and, and I, because I had never experienced or felt anything like that, that it was, it, it, it was, I guess I was taught that it was wrong, but I wasn't hundred percent sure that that was the way it was. And in this podcast, they basically um, interviewed a group of canvassers from California that were, were going around and trying to help people to, support gay marriage in the state of California. And what they found to be super effective was that if they sent out gay people to go talk to people at their houses, but they wouldn't bring that up until after. So they gave one specific example of this, this guy that was, he was canvassing and he went up to this guy that was out working on his car and he started talking about the car. They shared some interest in their approach to like restoring old vehicles. And at some point in the conversation, the canvasser said, Hey, what I'm really here for today is I want to talk to you about gay marriage in California and do you support it? And the guy's like, no, I don't support it. And he said, well, what if I told you I was gay and that this is going to affect my life? And that totally shifted his perspective. And, and the reason this was such a profound, I mean, even though I was just, it was just a podcast, I, I don't know that I had ever thought about it from that point of view. And, and when you, when you add a person, you know, when you think about the people, their actual people, what they're experiencing, um, it just, it just, it, it, it totally shifted my perspective on everything that way. And I, and I never, I don't think I ever looked back or changed. I mean, that one podcast and just thinking about a person, if I was talking to a person in front of me and they told me that, and I'm sure I've talked to a lot of people that I didn't know at that point that were gay. And had I known that, I'm sure that it would have shifted me my entire, you know, perspective and future experience on things. So that was a big shift for me. I'm not here in Yaville. I don't know. Sorry about that. Um, oh. It's sort of the same thing for me. There was this thing 10 years ago where I'm just beginning to question whether my outer authorities within my religious system have got things right. And I listened to a, a podcast. It was called the cultural hall. It might still exist by the way, but the cultural hall mm. podcast. And that. yeah. And um they would tackle sort of a little more nuanced topics that you wouldn't traditionally find kind of inside the chapel of Mormonism. Uh, 
and one of them was, um, and, and they're friends of mine now, but at the time they were complete strangers to me, but it was the Montgomery family and it was Wendy Montgomery and her son, Jordan. And she shares the story about how he's a gay young man in a Orthodox traditional Mormon ward. And, uh, he is sort of shamed by the believers, uh, by the members of that congregation. He, he should be allowed to kind of pass sacrament with the rest of the boys his age, but some of the members are refusing to take the sacrament when it's passed by him. Um, there are folks going behind their back to the bishop to try to get this kid to have a reduced role in his ward rather than be treated exactly as the other boys his age. And I remember hearing the story and for the first time, because up until that moment, I had known uh, gay people. But somehow I was able to sort of maintain my beliefs and distance kind of my interactions with those folks and not allow those two worlds to kind of interfere with each other. And when I listen to that podcast for the first time, I'm confronting uh, my homophobia and realizing that uh, this is just a human being who should be treated like a human being. And it's like this moment where this really drastic shift happens and it, it sounds like in, in ways that sort of the same thing happens for you. And I think that happens to all of us. I think it's why we go back to the earlier conversation. It's so important that we have exposure to people that are different than us. It's why the folks who are, when we talk about being awakened or woke and woke has such a negative term to it. I understand the negative reasons and some of those are valid, but the idea of realizing that the, the truths you were given may not be true um, the way that that happens, I mean, reading lots of books, people tend to, uh, psychedelic substances, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in this conversation, uh, it, traveling the world is another one because you get exposed to different people. And, and I think we all need these kind of magical moments that kind of shake us and show us our blind yeah. spots, like in the, like in, immediately. Uh, and then we can make drastic shifts if we're healthy enough to, to see what's going on. Yeah. Can I, can I actually add to that too? Mm -hmm. There was a, when I was 16 years old, so I, like I had mentioned, I grew up in a military family. So a lot of my um, younger years were, were living on military bases and living on a military basis has a lot of different, um, I mean, it's kind of being, take what, what it is to be in America and be patriotic and stand up for the pledge and do all that stuff. And you kind of make that, exaggerate that when you're on a military base, right? Like <clears throat> you go to a movie theater on a military base. And the first thing that happens is, you before any pre previews or anything they do a big national anthem where you stand up and they do all these you know patriotic aircraft carriers and airplanes as they're playing and you stand so the, the entire experience is just like a little more extreme on the patriotism so to say i grew up in a family that you know or, or an experience that like america was really really important and the best place in the world i mean that's just that's what it was right so when i was 16 i went to germany and I spent six weeks and, and four of those weeks, uh, I was living with a German family. And that experience really, really shook me a lot because at the time, you know, this is pre internet this is 1995, 96, 96. Anyway, so this is pre-internet. Um, the best information I have on anything in the world is, you know, coming from encyclopedias. And I think America is the greatest, cleanest, best, most, up, you know, and so when I got to Germany and, took the train and went to schools and realized it, it, it was a, it, it really, really rocked my world a lot to realize how 
well people were functioning and how well the German society was working. Um, and it, it just took me back a lot. I did not expect that at all. I expected mm. it to be not third worldy or, you know, poor, but, but I did not expect it to be as, I mean, there were so many things that I saw about that country that I thought, man, we are not doing near as good a job as these people are. We just are not. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it, it really rocked my life a lot especially coming from, you know, that intensely patriarchal world that I was living in. So, yeah, that seems, you know, we get told we live in the greatest country on earth, the United States of America. It's just, it's so awesome. It's the best thing. If you're going to be born somewhere, this is the place. And, and yes, people, you know, cross borders uh, at great risk to themselves to, to try to get here. But at the same time, that idea also isn't exactly true. Like uh, Finland was voted the sixth best country, the best country six year in a row. And those countries that come from over there, Denmark and uh, uh, Finland, uh, Netherlands, Switzerland. Um, I know I'm missing a bunch of them, but they're, those countries tend to always be at the very top of these sort of studies year after year after year. And so, as you point out, like some of the things were told by our system so that we have patriotism so that we're loyal to it so that we feel a sense of gratitude and uh, debt to it. Um, we sort of tell stories to get people to buy in and those stories don't represent the truth. And when you get out and you see the world at large, like you said, with Germany, we, that exposure is life-changing. That exposure fills in blind spots and allows us to maybe see reality a little closer to what it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I've talked to a lot of people about this experience of mine. And and I think that it's, it's interesting to watch people almost get like defensive um, as I'm saying, Hey, listen, you know, Germany was a lot cooler place than I thought. And it kind of shifted my perspective on, Hey, maybe America is not the, the only amazing best place in the world to live. And it's, I think the hard thing about this, it's not about, Germany's better or America's better. It's just that they're all, they're all good. There's good things about all. There are some things about Germany that I did not like at all, but there are some mm -hmm. things about Germany that I liked a lot more. Right. And I think mm -hmm. it's just like broadening our, our perspective to not be like, it doesn't have to be this or that it's there's good in both places. We don't, there's not really like a, this is the only place that's good in the world. That, that, that's kind of a ridiculous thing to think, right? Like mm -hmm. there's good places all over the place. We don't have to just, there's not like a scarcity of positive places to live. We don't need to own that. And I think that is what I've tried to like come into is that it doesn't have to be all this or all that. There's good about all of them. We don't have to be defensive and be like, oh, you're saying America's terrible. No, it's not about America being terrible. It's just, there's more out there than just this. That's all. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people at present who are they, they grew up in a religious paradigm. They are learning somewhere along the way that that paradigm doesn't hold up. You and I have gone through this. They learn that this paradigm doesn't hold up and they start deconstructing. They, they want to figure out like what's real and what isn't and how much of the tools of religion do I take with me? Uh, and, they're, and they're trying to figure out how to kind of rebuild or reconstruct a, a brand new vibrant life with the figuring out kind of who they are and establishing that identity. What are your thoughts on, on folks 
who maybe at the present moment are kind of exploring their spirituality outside of uh, traditional religious frameworks. What are maybe what are some things from your own journey or what advice might you have for people who are uh, on that kind of path of deconstruction and figuring out that the stories they were given uh, about their, about how the world works spiritually uh, about who God is and about what rules there are to get back to him or to heaven. They're learning that those things just aren't true. What, what advice do you have for people who are kind of in that path? Hmm, advice. Um, let me start with this. I, I, for, there was a time about a year or so ago that I started asking people, people that, I mean, I asked you this, I asked Amanda this, I asked a bunch of our friends this and other people that I'd run into what their definition of spirituality was. And the reason being is because I, I think I got to a point in my, you know, thinking through this um, where I just was like, I don't even know what spirituality means. And I feel like I need to have a more solid understanding of what spirituality is before I can maybe define or express or understand what I'm trying to even get at with this. And uh, I think ultimately what I came to with asking all these people what spirituality was for them is that spirituality might be the most broad different perspective definition that i've ever gotten from anybody I, I, we have different perspectives on a lot of words in the mm -hmm. you know english language but spirituality i feel like people were all over the map right they, they, they were just creating whatever they felt with it so from that point i think i i kind of came to this idea that spirituality is our understanding of the un things that we can't understand. So anything that that sits in a space of mystical or uncertainty, or there's not like a concrete factual basis around it, that's kind of our spirituality. And so our spirituality is like seeking to be okay with the unknown or the uncertain in life. And so I, with that, I think I, I came to a spot where I've been more happy than I've been with this since I, I probably my entire life, to be honest with you, is that it's seeking just to be okay with uncertainty. And that that's the way I look at it is like, and, and I think we have different tools to help guide us. And, and we, we can use, I mean, and for a long time, I leaned into like Buddhism and other philosophies like stoicism and read a ton of stoicism. And that was really, really helpful. But it's not as helpful for me right now. And, and, I, and I, the great thing is, is that I don't, I don't feel like anymore that I have to just adopt a new philosophy or I just have to adopt a new form of belief to, to explain spirituality. The fact of the matter is, I don't believe any of us will ever come to like a concrete understanding of quote unquote spirituality. This is, we, we are, there's a, just a, a shit ton of stuff in life that we will never ever fully understand. And we can say, this is what it means to us, but that's, that's that's also just made up really right like we're, we're creating those to make ourselves feel better which is totally fine but at the essence and the basis of all of that it's just all uncertain and embracing and being okay with the fact that we just will never ever know was really really helpful for me and that i just it, it just i don't know it it's scary to feel that there's nothing and we're never going to have an answer to it, but it also feels like there's a lot less pressure. And if there's a philosophy or a thought or a belief or a perspective that I hear that's really helpful for me, I grab it. I use it until it doesn't really serve me anymore. Then I move on. And so I don't, I don't have to like adopt something permanently for life. It just, I go with what I feel at the time and I do it for as long as it feels good and it works for me. 
and then I move on. I, you know, it's like the, the, uh, the story of the, uh, the raft from Buddhism, you know, the, the allegory of the raft, right? Like, I, I don't know if you know that. That's one of my favorite. I love that, right? Like the idea of like, you get to this river, you build the raft to get across. Do you continue to carry that raft up with you forever? Or do you just let it go? And it served its purpose and you move on. And if you run across another river, you build another raft. But that's, that's the way I approach it. I think. Yeah, there's no sense to carry the raft for hundreds of miles, not knowing whether you meet another river or not, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Make any sense. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's been my take on what spirituality is. And that would be my advice is just take the tools that work for you now, but they probably will not work for you forever. And that's okay. Yeah. We, we human, um, and you're hitting on the head. Um, things have their moment where they seem important to me. And in the moment, old me would have gone like, Oh, I found it. That's the thing that answers all the questions. And in reality, it doesn't. And it became really useful to me to realize that the, the experts out there, the outer authorities, I just learned one day, and we've kind of been hitting on this, but I just learned one day like, oh, at best, you know some things, but you misunderstand a lot of things. And at worst, most of these authorities that I trusted to have answers didn't know shit. And when you realize yeah. that the people you placed your trust in don't, don't know any of the things they claim to know. They just don't. Um, it does make it a lot safer for you to go like, look, I'm just going to, I'm going to try a thousand things. I'm going to, I'm going to read stoicism. Yeah. I've done that too. Uh, I'm going to take up Buddhism. Oh, I don't like the religious side of Buddhism. I'm going to put my face down and take on secular Buddhism. Oh, that's beautiful. But once I've you know read those 20 books, now I got to figure out how to, where else am I going to go? And uh, I try to understand psychology or I bounce around and want to know this, or I, I try to meet different people. And, and we talked about that earlier, try to learn different uh, perspectives. Spirituality for me is really every day being engaged with the world, learning more about my inner world and my outer world and feeling a sense of awe and transcendence that comes with being on that journey. And as you point out, it's not a, there's not a spiritual system that is the one. It really is just living a life of curiosity. Mm-hmm. So, in which I think you're pointing yeah. to. Yeah, you're curious. I yeah, Embr- curiosity. I love that. I, I love that idea. Just embracing curiosity. Yeah, because it will change, right? Things will mm-hmm. change with that. You will. You will change. Things around you will change, and that will shift all of that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a constant journey with no end. I feel like it's not a, de- it's not like a, an arrival. We're not looking for a point of arrival. At least I, I don't feel like there has ever existed a point of arrival for any person in this path. Yeah. So. You and I have been uh, part of a, a book club uh, at times. And one of the books that we did at one time was this uh, internal family systems, Richard Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And uh, we get down with, I get down with the book and I'm like, this is cool. I, I don't know what this is. Um, my friends and I read a book. We talked about it. They seem to have understood it better than I did, but this seems like something I'm curious. I want to know this. So, uh, asked a mutual friend of ours to point me towards a therapist who specialized in IFS internal family systems and just saw him today a little bit ago. And um, therapy has this modality of therapy has been spiritual for me. I've had the chance to take in new tools 
to understand what's going on inside me, to have a new tool to communicate with my friends, but most importantly, my primary partner, right? So my spouse, I sit and have a conversation with her and I'm able to communicate with her about the things that are part of me that don't, that aren't cohesive with the parts of her and do so in a way that we're not, neither one of us has this emotional attachment to it. So it's not personal. Like, oh, that part of you over there, when my part over here does this thing, your part sort of shows up protective or my part sort of shows up shitty. And, And now like, I'm not mad at you. Like those are our parts misbehaving sometimes or getting hurt really easy. And it's been a a completely new tool in the tool bag. That's just been so fascinating and I would call it spiritual and yet it's, it's just a modality of therapy. Um, Yeah. But but like you, I just want to keep moving. I want to learn something. I want to figure out ways to apply it and I'll be happy to come back to it later if there's something new to see. But if I start to hit a plateau, I want to move on to the next thing and learn something new again. Yes. You seem to be that way too. You seem to be that way too. Yeah, what, absolutely. What are some yeah. of the things that maybe you're reading about or thinking about, or is there any, is there anything that, you know, whether it's a book or a, a movie or a TV show or a conversational topic, like what are some of the things that are kind of stirring around in your brain right now? Like what are some of the things that you're, yeah. you're passionate about? That, you know, the, the, the idea of that IF, IFA stuff or IFS, it's IFS. Internal family system, right? Yeah. Um, that that book was really, really helpful for me. And uh, one of the things that I think has helped me a lot with that, and, I, and I've, I, I've tried to utilize this and think through this, is that meditation is a really tricky thing. You know, I feel like this idea of meditation is hard. And I know there's not necessarily one right way to meditate. But one thing that I kind of tried to like, maybe combine a hybrid experience was using this idea of like, there are parts inside of me, there are different perspectives and different things, different, you know, with this IFS systems or IFS. Um, and so I, I've rather than just try to do a traditional meditation, what I'll do is I'll sit down and almost try to just like, listen, right. That will be my meditation is just listening to what's happening and not trying to like seek anything out, not trying to like, but almost just like listening to the different voices or perspectives that are happening in my head, which is when it's presented like that, I guess I'm listening to the different voices in my head. It sounds a little crazy, but the fact of the matter is we are, we are having, you know, our, our internal subconscious, whatever is doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. And through, through kind of sitting and just like closing my eyes and just kind of like listening to my insides, um, it's been really interesting. And I feel like I've, I've kind of been able to get to the root of a lot of the, the challenges and like just internal problems I face, internal obstacles I face through these, because I've been, been able to better understand why I'm afraid or why I'm opposed or why I don't want to do Mm -hmm. certain things. And um, anyway, that came from that book. I thought that was really interesting. And I totally agree with you that like it, there is so many great things that come from that, but it's also a little bit hard to grasp at first. So man, I'm sure having a therapist that helps you that would be it's, really beneficial. It's been great. Um, you're a really serious entrepreneur. You're, you're constantly trying to come up with ideas and then that's the first step. But then the next step is to take those ideas, create a product, take it to, take it to market and begin to sell to consumers. And so you've spent a lot of years of really flourishing in that creative spirit to the point where you literally have created products and taken them 
to market to the consumer. And um, I'm just, there seems to be this battle in all of us between um, again, the world is difficult to, it's hard to be a human being. There's so many things you have to feel and suffer through or deal with. Being a human is so complicated. You, you try to share your ideas with another human being and, Often there's misunderstanding, almost naturally there's misunderstanding because there's language is such a, we don't really see it on the front end, but language is such a limited way to communicate clearly with somebody. Um, but there is this balance we try to find between kind of creativity and personal growth. And sometimes we're sort of have to step away from that and do kind of self-care and take a break from things. But then, you know, the extreme of that is to be, you know, idle and lazy uh, are the words that sometimes get applied to those things, but sort of taking a, a break that maybe is for your own good. How do you balance um, a life of creativity and hard work and getting things done? Because you're the, you're the person driving the train, getting things done, but also making sure that you take breaks and, um experience self-care uh that that to me i feel like sometimes that's a really hard uh thing to balance and i'm just curious how you do that it is hard um uh i i think creativity one one thing that has helped me kind of maybe embrace creativity a little bit more and and honestly embracing that has helped me grow personally as well. So I think it's, it's directly connected is this idea that creativity is a lot more than we've been taught. It is. Uh, um, sometimes I think when we think of the idea of what creativity is, we have very spe- specific parameters, right? Like creative people are artistic. They know how to draw or paint or create music or, or they're, you know, they're, they're, I feel like we have, determined creativity means a very specific set of things and the truth of the matter is i I think creativity can come in any form and i think we need to be less afraid of being and enjoying things that we really really like and okay so one i'll give you one specific example i grew up in a home that not that not that tv watching wasn't acceptable because i mean we did watch tv but it was like tv was kind of seen as like, ah, that's a waste. Like that's slothful. You don't do that. It's maybe sometimes, but just not very often. And I've come to a place in life where I think my wife and I will, we'll sit down and we'll, we'll watch a show together. And I think the process of us sitting together and watching a show. And even if it's like we take an entire Sunday afternoon, we binge an entire series that would have previously been very like shameful right? Like, mm-hmm. no, you don't just waste an entire afternoon watching the show. But the but the, the process of us watching something and then talking about the character development and what happens and the ongoing conversations that we take from watching that TV series, I think is a very creative endeavor. And I, and I think that we need to like shift perspective of what creativity means. If, if we're gaining something and it's, it's growing any level of anything in our lives, that's a creative endeavor in my experience, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I, and so I think that I look at creativity now all over the place in my life, whether it be, you know, cooking food or watching TV or taking a walk or just listening to a podcast. I think there's some creativity that can come from almost anything that we do. And from that creativity, if we can like not feel guilty or bad or it's wrong, but 
lean into the fact that there's some creativity in that, then I think we grow personally. There, there's things that we can gain and grow from and share with others. And that helps other people grow. So how do you, there's gotta be moments where you are exhausted from the work that you do. How do you, how do you sense within yourself? Like, Ooh, I, I got to take a break. I need, I need this afternoon. I'm just gonna, whatever it is, whatever it is you do. And I'd, I'd love to know what your things are in terms of taking a break from, from your work. Like how do you recognize you need to do some self-care and what does self-care look like for you? Um, so I, I think in some ways I almost have to like schedule things. I found that there, there's a couple things that work really well for me. Um, one of the things I work from home and I have this tendency to like not ever want to, I'm just at home. So it's easy. And why would I leave home? But if I, I try to at least once a week, set something up where I leave the home and, and I'm not talking about like going to the grocery store per se or something like that, but I'm saying like, for example, mm -hmm. last week, you and I met up, right? Like something like that, where I will go and I'll meet somebody for lunch or I'll do something, but during the work day. So I try to schedule one thing every week where I actually have to leave that's not work related and I get out and that, that gives me a lot of, I mean, it doesn't seem like rest per se or personal, but, but that is rest for me. It's an escape. It's a diversion. And it's also <clears throat> being alone at home, you know, not being around other people is, is draining for me. I, I, I have enough, I guess, extroverted tendencies in me that I need people. So that refills and helps me a lot. Um, just, some level of exercise. And again, this is something that I have to like almost schedule in, even if I just go for a walk or a bike ride or go to the gym, whatever it is, multiple times a week, I just have to really be intentional about doing those two, those things. So honestly, the getting out at least once a week and try to do it more, that that's a huge one for me. It really helps a lot. Yeah. I, it sounds maybe a little bit, I don't know if you would have said this and you can agree or disagree, but it sounds like it. And it's something I relate to if it's true which is that I will need to do sort of that same thing. I, I feel like I have this maybe equal amount of extrovert and introvert in me. I tend to call myself an introvert, but I do need to get out of the house as well. I also work from home doing the podcast stuff and um, I, I can spend three, four five days in, in the home. And suddenly I'm like, man, I just, this, I'm, I'm just not liking this. I need to do something. So I need to get out. And then once I get out and enjoy an afternoon doing something, go for a walk in the park or uh, go meet a friend for lunch. Soon as that sort of comes to an end, then I feel like, all right, and I, I'm ready to go back home and jump back into the work. Um, and it totally. sort of seems like yep. this ebb and flow of taking breaks when you sense you need them. And then that break is sufficient. And then you jump right back into the things that uh, kind of allow your creative spirit to get going. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's almost, it's, it's, it, it feels to me a lot, a lot of are somewhat relevant to what I was saying before about like this idea of creativity is that I think that we have these specific definitions of what, you know, recharging would be like, Oh, I'm going to take a day where I just rest and I don't do anything mm -hmm. else. But like, I, I think that's the problem is it took me a long time to realize what was actually helping me and recharging me mm -hmm. didn't, didn't, fit into the category of what not I'm naps for me. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. It wasn't, it wasn't taking an afternoon nap. Mm -hmm. It was actually, doing a lot of work. I was getting up and I was leaving and I was going somewhere like that seemed like a lot of work. But another thing that really helped me a lot is like 
this is a new thing that is cooking. There are just sometimes that I like, I like mm. cooking and it, like, it's a ton of work, but it, it, it really rejuvenates me in a way that surprises me, you know? So, I mean, I think you just have to experiment and try things. And I'm sure that those won't always be the case. I'm sure it'll change, you know, like life changes. I ch- so. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, you know, religion gives us all of these rituals and ceremonies. And we were talking about this at lunch the other day that when, when you deconstruct your religious system, you sort of want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You sort of sense like this thing wasn't true. It was trying to manipulate me and control me. Hence rituals and ceremonies are probably part of that really bad formula of control and manipulation. So let's just throw them out. But uh, as we were talking about there at lunch, that's, that's really not true. Ritual and ceremony play an important role in, in our well-being, And uh, hence if we want to have a vibrant, healthy life, we probably need to maintain some degree of uh, rituals uh, and ceremonies in our life. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on the role of ritual, the role of ceremony, and maybe some of the rituals or ceremonies you have in your life. Yeah, for sure. I definitely, yeah, as we talked about, I, I definitely got really frustrated with the idea of rituals um, to the point of like traditions, you know, especially around holiday traditions. I, I really pushed back a lot against those um, uh, for a long time, just because it felt like to me that, I don't know, there, there were so many required rituals and ceremonies that it just felt like they were all wrong. So I wanted nothing to do with any of them. Um, I don't think that that's good at all anymore. And it was, and I can't even remember what, what exactly took place, but there was a point where I think it was actually talking to my brother and he just kind of basically said, just make them the way you want them. You don't, there, there's no rules to this, right? You can, you can do whatever you want. Like on Christmas, you can make Christmas on the 23rd and have a, you know, don't use a tree or what, I mean, you do whatever you want. I was like, wow, I don't know why that seems like a, such a simple thought, of course, that there's no required anything. But the second that I, I think I just embraced that idea of like, I have full control. We have full control as a family to do whatever we want. I have full control to do it as a person, what I want to do with these, everything changed. And, and I think rituals are a massive part of our lives now. And um, we do all sorts of things. And um, that are very traditional, you know, ritual ceremony based. Um, we, every Friday, and this is, this is something that I didn't even define as a ritual for the longest time, even though it was a ritual, but uh, we do a, we do a pizza night every Friday where we, we pop this pizza grill and every Friday we do pizza. And it's just like a really simple, easy way to do something. And my kids, honestly, my youngest kid didn't even like pizza for the last, for the first probably two or three years that we did this. And, but we still did it every week. And even though he didn't really necessarily like pizza, he still every Friday was like, it's pizza Friday. We got pizza Friday. And I think it provided kind of a purpose or a meaning and uh, something that we all just looked forward to. And so it's become this massive integrated part of our lives where regardless of whether I even eat pizza. Some, there's sometimes I'll make it and I just don't even, don't even eat some. I just don't feel like it, but I just love that it's part of our, part of our week and it's integrated into our lives and something that we just, we just do. And it's, it's part of what has become our family and what, you know, so um, we, we've shifted like thing. One of the things that we did a couple years ago, because again, my, I got real frustrated with 
traditions traditions around holidays specifically was Thanksgiving. It just started to feel like a real waste to me. Like, why are we doing all these? We're, we're cooking all day. We're meeting with all these. We're running all over the place. We're missing out on what I think the essence of Thanksgiving is, which is being with a family. So a few years ago, we just stopped doing all that. And we're like, we're just going to eat whatever we want. We don't have to follow the rules. Like nobody likes turkey in our family. Why are we eating turkey? That's ridiculous. So now every year we wake up, we don't go to anyone's house. We stay at our house and we just cook whatever we want. Everybody picks one thing. So last year we had sushi, teriyaki chicken, apple pie, pumpkin pie, and something totally random that was our entire thanksgiving right it so was you still so had a wide long. array of things it was still a totally a, a full spread it was just every person picked something they wanted to eat yep that's so cool yeah so hmm. but but honestly it's been so amazing and I, I think for our kids they they enjoy it more too because they get like that one thing they want right and th- we don't set up these really specific parameters like no we have to do this we just do what we want and it's still we're all together and the point of it is that we're spending time together, right? And we're doing something that's meaningful and it provides purpose and value and so. Yeah, I, I'm, we had a thing when I, so first off, my family I grew up in, I think my parents were wonderful, but we didn't have rituals or ceremonies that it doesn't occur to me what those would have been. There wasn't any, but a little bit more to the extended family, we had a thing where Every Friday, all of my dad's siblings and their spouses and their kids, whoever was available, would go to grandma and grandpa's house. And if it was nice out, we'd all sit in the backyard. Uh, People would bring cases of beer. Um, There was plenty of pop for those of us who didn't drink, uh, either the underage kids or like myself being a a Mormon. Um, We would sit around in chairs and we would just shoot the shit about politics or Uh, sports or uh, any other topic that was pressing on kind of the collective mind and people were free to disagree. And and there were so many things that were learned there. And I I think, you know, you bring up the point that it generally rituals bring us together, sort of a communal fashion. Um, But they also sort of give us a space to pass down the way we do things. Um, I'm really worried about the world we live in and we all kind of keep our distance from everybody. And I look at the social skills and the other information that my younger kid has taken in. And it seems so significantly less than past generations or even my older children. And I think in part ritual and ceremony gives us a, a space to pass on tools or to pass on perspectives or to pass on information that, is necessary for the human species to have this kind of collective amount of information that keeps getting passed on so that we do not lose the progress that we've made. Um, There there seems like rituals and ceremonies can play so many roles in our life and not need to have anything to do with religion at all. Uh, Super important. For sure. No, I I, I agree. And I, I think that that was being one of my, yeah. I mean, clearly, like I said, my frustration, I think was, was derived from this idea that religion is where we get all of this. And that's not necessarily true, right? We, mm-hmm. we just, it just so happens that I connected those things, but they're not, not necessarily true at all. Like we get, we, we all do a ton of secular rituals and traditions all the time. So. Yeah. And, and they add, especially for younger people, they add 
kind of a, a blanket of safety and security. Like I know every Friday I'm going to be eating pizza with mom and dad. Totally. Absolutely. That's, that's another thing. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that was another thing I was going to say with it is that I think it, it gives us, it gives us some certainty in an uncertain world. I mean, mm-hmm. like we talked about spirituality, at least my, my perspective on it is that it's, it really is kind of trying to find coping me- mechanisms for us to understand and be okay with our uncertainty that we're always living with. And, man, those rituals just give us some concrete stability, certainty as we're navigating through life, which is super helpful and safe and comforting. Yeah. The word woke has such a negative stigma to it um, to the point where I almost don't even like the name of the podcast at times, the almost awakened podcast, because the idea is mm-hmm. that you're almost woke and and you can, you know, there are negatives to that idea that you can really miss the boat on important things being so concerned in uh, some of these liberal avenues that you, you sort of lose focus maybe on things that are actually working at the moment. And we can, we can be woke to the extent that it could be to our detriment. And, and I want to certainly acknowledge that, but at the same time, realizing the patterns and habits that have been handed to you were sort of meant to control you, to keep you blinded, to keep you doing what the system needs you to do to perpetuate it and to keep in power those that started off in power. And to me, woke is this idea that you woke up and you realize like, oh, like this is all myth. It's all made up. There are things we're doing that are not helpful to the greater good of humanity. And let me be honest and accountable to those conversations. And if something, if something shows itself that we're doing it wrong, I want to be open to talking about what would change look like that to me is yeah. what it means to be you know, awake or awakened. And yeah. along with that is this idea of being, you know, enlightened, having enlightenment, having these experiences that kind of wake you up to doing something new. And, and I want to ask, your own personal journey. We've talked a little bit about being curious and learning, but in, in the journey of growth and spirituality, progress, trying to be a better human today than you were yesterday or tomorrow than you were today. Um, where does the, the role of enlightenment or learning or waking up to things as they really are, what role does your curiosity play in your, um, in your growth and your spirituality. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me, let me just really quickly talk about um, uh, an experience I had that, that I think would, is going to connect to my understanding or my definition of what it, what I would understand enlightenment to be. Uh, I, I had some family in town that was all visiting over the summer and there was, I had this moment where I just, I just felt just a, a, a level of like, I don't know even know if happiness was the right term, right? It just so happened that all these people were here and I had was talking to my a sibling that lives out of state, another sibling is out of state, their kids. And I went downstairs and I just had this, this, this moment where I just felt like complete acceptance of what was happening. And I was just like very, it wasn't like I said, that's why it's not like it was just like, Oh, this happy moment, this overjoyed moment. It was this moment of just like full acceptance of everything. And I don't know that I've ever really had a moment like that. And for some reason it happened this day. And I don't know why or how, but in that moment that I just felt like complete acceptance for everything, my first thought was, and now I'm going to die. 
that was my first thought is like, oh my gosh, I am going to die right now. And I think the reason that I, that happened to me is that it was like, I, I had just arrived at this place where I just, everything was fine. And I wasn't, I wasn't worried about something in the past. I wasn't concerned about something. I just had this split second moment where I had just embraced and accepted everything. And I was at peace in that moment. And I had attributed that I'm sure because of my religious upbringing that once you, once you're at that mental space that what else is there to live for, right? Like that's all there is. And so it was a really interesting feeling to feel that and then think that I was going to die. But, but ultimately I don't think that's what it's really about. It was about this idea that I do think that acceptance is the key to enlightenment. I don't think it's a matter of feeling happy or sad. I think it's a feeling of you're just, you're just able to be okay and accept all things, all things that you're experiencing. You just are able to embrace and accept those things for what they are. And that doesn't mean that they're good or bad. They're all, all sorts of things, right? Positive, negative, and everything in between, but embracing and accepting those things. Just like we talk, I mean, to bring this back to all the stuff we've talked about today, like races and difference in sexuality, if we can just accept and be okay and not be, harsh and judging not only others but i think inside of us that's where we do the most judgment is the judging inside of us and so if we can let those things go i think that is where we arrive at what i would say is enlightenment and i can't remember the other part of your question no no i i I don't know either but um that for me me is great like i was having a conversation this morning for i had one of these interviews this morning with phil mclemore and he was talking about the scripture from Corinthians, where Paul talks about, I die daily, I die every day. It, there is this strange thing that happens that, and we'll get to a question on death here at the end. I always kind of save this one when people pick this question, because uh, I think death mm-hmm. is such a, a, a big topic, and it'll be a, a place to end with kind of some some complex discussion around death and dying. But um, when you say, like, I learned to, like I said, this moment of acceptance, and the very next thought is you thought, you like, this is the moment to die. Um, mm-hmm. there seems to be in the realms of spirituality, whether you call it secular Buddhism, whether it's meditation, there seems to be the very next thought of acceptance. Cause acceptance is it. Like I need to learn that the world is unfolding in front of me. I can try to manipulate it to be what I want. I can try to manipulate it to distance the things I don't want, but inevitably it's just going to happen. Like life's going to happen and I can't stop it all. Mm-hmm. I can't create it all. Um, I need to learn to just accept it. The very next thing that does come after that is this all comes to an end. And am I okay with that? Um, because yeah. it's the ultimate thing that you need to learn to accept is that yeah. you're going to die. Um, and so yeah. I found that fascinating that that those two thoughts were kind of it, connected uh, for you. Yeah, it, it was an interesting experience for sure. Um, when you deconstruct, your religious system, most people end up having to wrestle with the fact that nothing means anything. Like there is no meaning other than the meaning you make, but yeah. there isn't any meaning. This is all myth, every bit of it. And you know, somebody can say there's an example, like they, they go, well, no, this isn't all myth. I mean, look at the table in front of me. And I go, a table's a myth. I mean, it's a laminated structure, which is also a myth on top of fibrous wood materials from a cut down tree formed into a shape and we human beings labeled it desk. And, yeah, uh, true. and, and, and this is a desk, but also something that looks entirely different could be a desk. And 
Um, it, it's all make believe, and and we humans have applied uh, stories to all of it. But the big question: some people end up in nihilism; they end up hopeless because no meaning means then what's the point of it all, and hence there's no sense in me existing. Uh, and it sort of comes to kind of a really dire, hopeless mindset. And often people get out of that. Most of the time, people get out of that. But a lot of people do when they deconstruct experience at least a momentary period of nihilism. And yet when you get out of it, if you do, you do have to recreate meaning. And yes, that's also myth, but we do it anyway, because it's, it's, it's what we do to build a cope and uh, to find a way to have an enjoyable life. I'm, I'm just curious what you've done with that part of the journey, taking it apart, letting go of the meaning of everything whether you dealt with nihilism or not. And then what did you do to create new meaning in your world again? It's a good question. I mean, yeah, meaning I, I, I think, I mean, hundred percent you're, I agree with you on that. It is all created, but also I think that that's what makes it. That's there's, there's some beauty in this idea of us being able to create meaning, right. Is that mm-hmm. because we do have control. I, I think that, it, that in a lot of ways that gives us, I don't know. My, I, I definitely, you know, I, I, the, the perspective of nihilism is definitely something that I have, I've thought through that, like, what is the point of anything? Nothing has a purpose. It's all made up. So why does anything matter? But, but I think that the, the, the other side of that from, from what I've come to is that it's, it's the best possible other side is that we have control to create meaning. We have, we have control to like create, we can create um, ceremonies and rituals and we can seek out the people that we most want to be around and we can seek out different people so we can grow our perspective. Like that, that is something that we all have control over. And as, as I've been more intentional about all of those things, that is when I've found the most meaning and purpose and growth and happiness in my life is that through those very intentional steps and in creating meaning. And, you know, like I said, connecting with people, there's so much value and, and amazing things that happen through connecting with people. And if, but it also takes, I mean, all of this takes work, right? Like meaning takes a lot of work. That's what I believe is that we can't just sit around. I mean, we can't just sit around and wait for something but that, that, that is, I don't think that's the most effective way to do it. I, I think it's a very proactive process, I guess. It's not, it's not a passive process. Creating meaning is, is very proactive. And I think that's where we find and we gain the most is, is through being super proactive about it. Yeah. You, you, you connect the dots to it being about human connection, that much of what you find meaning in is uh, connecting with other, other humans, other people. And in, uh, in human connections, you can't help, but again, we're different than the person next to us. You can't help, but bump into each other. And, and then you choose to share a life. I mean, you're married, you choose to share a life with a person. And, you know, when you met that person, there's, uh, you have this deep attraction, you meet this person, you form a relationship. It It's going so good that you decide to get married and like promise yourself for the rest of your life. Inevitably though, conflict arises. And we'll talk about uh, conflict resolution here in a moment, but as you bump into each other, it, you can't help but be different than them. 
And in every instance that you're different than them, there is often an abrasion and the more significant that difference. So for instance, if you come into the relationship, you're just madly in love with your partner, but you come into the relationship, not wanting any kids and they're madly in love with you. Everything is perfect. And they want to have seven children. Well, that's going to be an issue. And we'll talk about that here in a second, but some of the abrasions that we get from people are people not being healthy with this or not respecting our space. And often in this world, we have to learn. Often we don't come with this skill. Nobody really gives us the skill most of the time. I think this is sort of kind of self-learned, but we need boundaries. And I wanted to ask you, like, if you have any insights or any thoughts on establishing and maintaining healthy boundaries in relationships and what what boundaries serve for you and, and any other thoughts you've got around that topic. Yeah, boundaries are, man, some of these concepts are so interesting because I, I mean, boundaries and consent, and there's so many of these concepts that I that I think back and I'm like, man, I know these words existed 20 years yeah. ago, right? I know, I'm pretty sure they did exist, but yeah, but they didn't really conceptually really. exist or mm-hmm. something, right? Like the, the words were in the dictionary, but like they were not conceptually a part of our society or something. Mm-hmm. It's a very bizarre shift to to see how we just yeah. did not have those, and now we do. So that's always interesting to me. But I I think boundaries are. I look at boundaries like, <clears throat> excuse me, um, almost like a tool that 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 or a skill, maybe I should start there. It's a skill that, that takes a lot of practice. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that is an inherent thing that we just have the ability to do. And sometimes I think when we talk about boundaries, we're like, you just need to set some boundaries. But the truth is most people that I know, because of what I'm talking about, just they don't know how to do it. So they tend to like jump in and set these really extreme boundaries that affect a lot of people, that, that put people in really hard situations. And I think the truth of it is, it's, it's a skill that you have to like approach slowly and and build your aptitude for for doing and and i think the best way to do that is to do it within your own family like your immediate family with your if you have a partner or even with your kids or i mean even like i guess uh parents or or whatever but the the Mm -hmm. closer the people just to set tiny boundaries i mean like maybe like um so uh maybe for example with my with my wife be like all right on sunday afternoons I think it's, it's going to be something that I, I need you to give me some space in the morning on Sundays to be able to drink coffee for one hour from this time to this time. And you just have to give me that time, right? Like it's a really simple, it's not, it's not going to hurt anybody, but I think that's, you, you start really basic and easy. And I think that over time, at least this has been my experience is that as I've practiced those, I've gotten better at them. I'm still not great. I'm still not great. I've, I've set a few boundaries with, within my family, like my parents and siblings. It's hard. It's really hard when yeah. you start you know, getting into larger familial boundary setting, but starting small, starting simple, starting close and like working into it, I think has been the best thing for me to just be more effective at it. It is tough. Cause if I set a boundary, the other person either has a choice of breaking that boundary, which then requires a whole nother conversation, but yeah, because that's part they... of the boundary too, right? Like you have to like acknowledge that like, what if this doesn't happen because you have to be ready for that side too, right? Like you can't just be like, I'm going to set a boundary and you're going to do it. No, 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 no. There's two sides to this. Like you got to be prepared. Yeah. And the other side of it is if you change, if you set a boundary and that person goes like, well, 
I, I can't respect that boundary. So now you put in the, the follow-up, which is, you know, whatever it is, there's some degree of distance created because if you can't respect my boundary, I have to create more distance so that you don't have the chance to break my boundary. And then, and then you're left with sometimes people in relationship will choose to stay distant rather than respect your boundary. Right. And, and then you have to kind of go through this battle of, do I, do I weaken my boundaries in order to maintain this degree of human connection I wish I could have, or, or do I maintain my boundaries and keep myself healthier on this side of it, but I lose this relationship to some degree. It's, it's not the relationship I want with this other person. And, and I think that that all really gets messy and difficult um, trying to do Big this, time. especially when you're doing it for the first time or on the front end of, for the first time learning what boundaries are and trying to implement them. Big time, big time. And, and I think that's why you, you really have to, I mean, I, I've, I, I feel like I've made quite a few weird decisions where I'm like, I'm going to set a boundary, you know, and I come in hot and I try to set something up and it just does not go well because, mm. because of exactly what you're talking about. People are like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> But I don't think through the entire process. I don't think through what it actually means, the, the repercussions. Am I really going to stop seeing a person if they you know, don't follow what I want? I, I don't think through all those things, right? And that's why I'm like, I have learned that I have to like start really small and really think through the steps and practice. And, I, and it's, just, it's just hard. Setting boundaries is a, is a complex. I mean, it's a negotiation, right? You're, you're mm -hmm. like negotiating relationships and man, what is, what is more difficult than negotiating relationships? It's, it's really complicated. Yeah. I, I love your advice though. So for folks listening, you start off small, start off close. Yeah, that was another practice. word you used. I think that's great. Yeah. Uh, start close and, because those are comfortable relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you even said like, even on these small ones that you just initially are kind of practicing on the, on the really kind of entry level way of doing it that you ought to think through all the ramifications and permutations and recognize that like even on this small stuff there's you have blind spots and you're not considering all the totally. directions this could go so i think great advice yeah. um yeah, sometimes these things and you know sometimes we get bumped into because there's conflict um and it really mm -hmm. happens i think primarily because you have two human beings or more in a shared space and those human beings can't possibly all want the same things. And so whether it's your wife, whether it's your child, whether it's your parent, they want their world to look one way. You want your world to look another. And when you are in a shared space together, that difference can be conflict um, because both people aren't able to settle for what the other person wants. They, to some degree, they want to fight for, what they need to be okay, safe, secure, happy, content. Um, what are your thoughts on conflict and conflict resolution? Um, because we can't avoid it. We're, we're going to bump into each other. How do we, how do we handle those moments? Yeah. Conflict, conflict is also another, I mean, it's another, it's right along the same lines. It's like, it's a, it's a negotiation of, of relationships. And um, I, I think just similar to like setting boundaries, oftentimes we go into conflict where we're feeling a really intense uh, perspective that's opposing to the other person's perspective is we, we kind of feel like, if this person hears me, they're, they're going to figure like, we just we're right. And they just need to hear me and be on the mm -hmm. other side of it. But um, I think, you know, the truth, the truth of the matter is, is that, that 
rarely is reality. Like we, we know that, right? And the weird thing about conflict is for some reason we, we rarely ever have that outcome, but we continue to like roll into conflict. Like that's going to happen every time. And I, and I don't know how or why we continually think that it's going to be different, but that's, that's rarely the case, you know, where <laughs> anyway, um, I think just, man, coming into a conflict, like trying to understand the other person's perspective, you know, I mean, I know that's, it's kind of like common knowledge, I guess maybe just, but maybe common knowledge isn't the right term for that. But like, of course you want to understand the other person's perspective, but I think genuinely going into a conflict, if you can just really seek to understand why the other person thinks the way they do, even if you don't, you don't have to even agree with it. But, but what I think it does for me anyway, is it softens my, my approach to a disagreement. So it's not necessarily that I'm going to be like, Hey, I understand your perspective. So therefore I'm going to side with you, but it is going to give me a lot softer edge in approaching that conversation where at least I can understand the experience that has led them to the place of their understanding of this topic. Right? Like, so if I can understand their background led them to this. My background is totally different. That's why I think the way I do. We disagree, but I'm not going to be as harsh. I'm not going to come in as strong and hot if I understand and think a little bit more about where they're coming from first. So again, not not a great you know, solution, but it's better than anything I've got, I guess. I, I love the two things you said. The first one is that it never goes as well as you think it is. Like there, there's a conflict. Never. If I just tell you where you're bumping into me, you will respect that that's happening and you'll do something different so that this uh, doesn't occur. And that almost never happens. And then the second thing is to sit with other people's feelings that, you know, their expression of what's going on. I find that I used to, and I think I still do it to a large extent, but I used to, anytime there was conflict, I felt the need to explain myself. Like you'd go, Hey, what you did hurt me. And I would go, well, I did that because da, 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 you know, and maybe if we just all understand, inevitably, we all have our reasons for doing things. It's not a, a world full of assholes walking around, although there are a few. It's not a world full of assholes mm-hmm. walking around. It's really, generally speaking, good people whose difference of humanity, whether it's the words we use, where there's misunderstanding, it's the actions we take where someone doesn't feel cared for whether it's uh, our motivations are misunderstood. Inevitably, we have a reason for why we did it, and yet it still happened. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I did as a secondary thing is I would not only make excuses, but sort of leave it there. I never really went to the next step, which is to really sit with, hey, regardless of all my side of things, that person got bumped into and they're hurt. Can I sit with their hurt and validate that and let them know that I can see how they got there. I can see what I did. I can see that it caused that, that I don't, I don't want them to hurt. And let's let me now let you speak and you explain to me, what do you need to be okay? And work our tail ends off again, not an easy process, work our tail ends off mm-hmm. to compromise with our partners and our friends and our coworkers and other people we're in space with in such a way that we really make the effort to reduce their suffering, reduce their trauma, reduce their bad experiences, reduce their inconveniences, reduce their uh, their hurt and and their feeling uh, unappreciated or not being concerned with. Or there's so much that goes into it. But sitting with someone else in their in their yeah. shoes and trying to 
sit with their feelings and, and validate that they're having a real experience, that you're sorry that your actions led to that, and to see what they would say could be done to help minimize that. Yeah. And yeah. And, and in addition, I, I think that, you know, if you use questions to just in, mm-hmm. in a conflict, if you're using questions to try to discover more about where they're coming from on that, that, that also deflates a situation pretty, pretty quickly. And because they're, because now they're being able to kind of express what their perspective is, why they are where they are. And they're going to also be through that process, theoretically, more likely to be open to listen to your perspective. If you can start with understanding their perspective. Uh, again, th- none of that's easy. Conflict mm-hmm. is so hard. This is not like, mm-hmm. a, oh, this is what happened. But, but, it, but yeah. it, if you can get in the right frame of mind to be able to utilize, you know, and seeking to understand, I do feel like it deflates. And it also opens up opportunity for you to express your perspective better. Yeah. I I will say as a side note, uh, the IFS or parts work has really greatly helped. My wife and I now have numerous conversations weekly where she notifies me that her part got hurt. And we talk about what my part did to cause that hurt. And neither one of us has the emotional connection uh, to the responsibility of it per se. Like not that, not that we're being non-responsible to it. Like we're being responsible to the behaviors that happened, but we're able to talk about it without feeling like it's this person is wrong by the very nature of who they are. It's rather there's a part of them mm-hmm. that needed the world to look different. And that part showed up that way. And this part got hurt and allowed those parts to step off to the side and for the grounded whole individual there, the centered individual to talk to each other about that situation without sinking into fight or flight or lizard brain or um, that that way of handling things that almost more distresses us and doesn't allow us to to be calm and to handle things. So uh, just a little note yeah. there. But, um, no, that makes total sense. I'm sure you've explored flat earth theory, Bigfoot, whether we landed on the moon, are aliens real? There are, you know, was the election fixed? There are hundreds and hundreds of conspiracy theories out there, and they're a ton of fun. I, I, I've watched all the documentaries. I think they're fun to explore. Like, is that yeah. crazy thing that only a small number of people believe? Is it actually the truth and reality? And once in a while, conspiracies turn out to be true. So we can't close ourselves off to them entirely. We need to be aware that sometimes the thing that seems not obvious is the truth, and. We don't want to fall for things that aren't true. We don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. Uh, I know very intelligent, informed people who believe things that I think are conspiracies. Um, What are your thoughts on how you take seriously information that maybe doesn't match with your way of thinking the world works while, you know, having the, the safety to explore those things, the ability to try to get at the truth without dismissing it and not fall for things that are in the end, not true and will take your life energy off in a direction that isn't useful. Yeah. I I think I'm always afraid of um, being duped a little bit. I mean, I think that's yeah. just like a standard of, you know, a, 
what might exist. I don't know. Maybe that'll change in life. I don't know. It hasn't changed yet. So I, I think I'm always a little bit afraid that everything is false and nothing is true. So I think that that, that is that's an interesting starting point. But 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 like you said, it is it is important and, and realistic that there are things that are true that become that come from you know conspiracy and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, it can't be totally dismissed. I I <clears throat> I harm I, I think about harm a lot and like motive when it comes to stuff like this um and and just is is it is there a group of people that are being harmed from a conspiracy is there a motive for somebody to gain in a conspiracy i mean those are definitely like focal points that i try to like look at when it comes to any bit of information because i think if once if it's harming somebody or if somebody's gaining something, then I think it has a whole different category of um, problematic. I think there's there's a lot more problematic nature potentially with stuff like that. Um, I I I think that I that there's there's so much uncertainty in life, and I think a lot of times what conspiracies do for people is they give they give people a degree of certainty about something, even though it's not necessarily the correct thing. And if it, I I feel like I can leave space for wild conspiracies again if it's not harming if there's not people being like gaining from some sort of motivation if it's providing a safety and security and some even if it's a false degree of certainty for somebody it it it, i feel less intense about it than i used to because i because i know that like feeling any level of safety or security is really really valuable and it matters so that's where I leave space. That's where I go. That's how I approach them. Most, most conspiracy theories are harmless. If you walk through your life thinking the earth is flat, it probably isn't impacting your job or, uh, you know, so there really isn't any harm in allowing people to have their point of view. And like you say, sometimes it is harmful. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, especially when I think religion is involved or uh, political extremism is involved. Very much. I, uh, I've got one question left for you, and then we'll kind of close this out. And it's back to that question of death. Um, how do you approach the concept of death, uh, impermeance, the idea you, that nothing lasts forever? And uh, how has it impacted your approach to life and personal growth? And I think it does. So I'm curious to know your point of view. Without question. Death, I think, is one thing that was probably one of the most, if not the most scary thing coming from a perspective of living forever and never, you know, and and almost like not only living beyond um, our life here and but that this life was kind of not the best, right? Like this is the shitty version of what's going to be much better after we die. Um, I think that I realized once I really accepted and acknowledged the fact that this, this could be all there is regardless. And and so, <clears throat> excuse me, why would I be wasting? I, I, I almost felt like a lot of my life, not that I wasted my life out, like overtly wasted my life and I wasn't doing things, but I, but I do feel like I, I put a lot of things off. I, I, I kind of didn't prioritize a lot of things that should have been really important to me um because i kind of just thought you know like 
this life is just part of it. We're going to move on and we don't have to worry about this. And so embracing death for me has made, man, not only has it made my life so much better because I, I, I really value each and every moment that I have, but, but it's also, it's also helped me to, I don't know, my, my, my shared experiences with people around me. I, 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 I crave and I, want more from every one of those experiences and all the time that I have with other people. And I think in a lot of ways, again, that I just, I, I kind of was like, well, it's good enough. It, I glazed over a lot of the depth of relationships and figured I, I had time in the future to worry about that. And so it shifted everything about my life. Ironically, I feel like I'm much happier and also much sadder and angrier, but both, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Sometimes I I used to not go down the rabbit hole of thinking about death and some of the hurt or negativity that comes with that. And now knowing that the religious answers I were, I was given don't hold up. I know that anything's possible. And so death is sort of scary and death is a reminder to live. When death is on your mind, you're reminded to continually take advantage of the life that you have. And so I I used to live in a mindset that I could put off all the really important things of human connection and I would be able to catch up in some future moment after this life. And the reality is that that's not real. And, and hence this is all you've got and you got to take advantage of it. Yeah. It's also, I mean, you know, like having experienced now a few deaths in the the last five or six years, um, man, those experiences are, are so much, so much more intense. I mean, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a different experience um, when you have this perception that someone dies and they're going to, you know, some place then that you will most likely see them again. It's almost like you, you don't give it the credit that it, that it deserves. And I say credit that it deserves in the worst way, right? The, the most terrible, horrifying part of what really death is. It's like, you just like, you, you almost like make it like, oh, not a big deal. That's just a death. We're going to see them soon. And I, and now experiencing death, it's, it, I, I have been able to like fully embrace and feel the tragedy of what a death is. And it is, it's terrible and it, it's terrible, but also I'm so glad because it, it's going to make me appreciate every person so much more that I, in, that I encounter in my life. Because I, I know that when that person leaves, the feelings that come from that, like the devastation that comes from that is so, so intense. And so that's pushing me, experiencing those deaths has, has really pushed me to like, to care more, to be more proactive and to be, to be more dedicated to, you know, growing strong relationships that I have. So it, it's, 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 it's one of those weird things. Like I said, it's, it's the most devastating change, but the most beneficial change all at the same time. Yeah. You know, I, I lost my mom a few years ago and she, you know, she was young comparatively to where people's, you know, life expectancy is today. She was 59, but uh, it taught me a lot of things about appreciating these moments. And now that I'm, you know, now that I'm grandpa to grandchildren and realizing that there will come a moment where I will exit their life earlier than they wished or exit my children's life earlier than they wished. And, 
to take advantage of the moments that we have. And it really does create a much more vibrant life to be aware of death uh, while giving your full energy to living. So I appreciate all of that. Um, I love the conversation. I wish folks, folks get sort of a feel through these, especially in in today, since you are a friend in my circle. Um, These are the kinds of conversations I feel like just happen naturally when we're all together. Uh, and I hope that folks are benefiting from these. We'd love it if you left your your comments uh, down below. Uh, we appreciate folks if you want to subscribe or uh, like the video or subscribe to the channel. You can check out the Almost Awakened podcast at almostawakened.org. Uh, or if you want to check out the video uh, version, it is on our YouTube channel. Uh, Ammon, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Um, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that went into these, uh, the answers to these questions. And uh, I really appreciate your perspective. And it's just reminds me of that. I've got the best friends in the world. And so I thank you very oh, much thanks, for, for doing this. I appreciate awesome. it. I, I really enjoyed it. It's good. Sweet. Well, have a great day. Get back to what you're doing and uh, I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Talk soon. Thanks. Take it easy. <laughs>